Well, we're continuing uh, our series in Respectable Sins and Neglected Virtues. A few people have been asking me how we uh, chose the, the five areas we've looked at in this series. So a few people have sort of said, you know, did you, how did you settle on these particular uh, respectable sins, these particular neglected virtues? Uh, some have said, you know, these are, the sins, are these the sins you see in us at St George North as you stand up the front each week and preach? Are these the sins you're confronted by? Uh, maybe I do, but uh, the truth is I actually chose these five areas because these are the five areas I struggle with. These are the sins I perhaps tolerate more than others uh, and uh, these are the virtues I recognise that I perhaps neglect to cultivate. And so if they are the sins of our church, if you're feeling like I'm preaching specifically at you, rest assured I'm aiming them at me first. That's my intention. Uh, But you might notice that besides the introduction to the series, which I keep repeating, if you miss that, you must go back and listen to that. that, That's the one that lays the groundwork for this whole six-week series. Uh, Besides the introduction, you'll notice that I sort of took Senior Minister's Choice on two of the particular sins. The first was greed uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then this one on judgmentalism, and that was intentional. Uh, I said when I spoke on greed that that is our sin because of the world we live in, Uh, Our world is just driven by greed and we just take it in without even critiquing it and thinking about it. So we just follow along with our world. So I gave greed the number one spot. It got the number one sermon, if you remember. But I think judgmentalism, or what I'm calling the sin of a critical spirit, is a close second. Uh, In my experience, every Christian, basically since the Apostle Peter... And remember, Peter was the first person to say, you are the Christ to to Jesus. So he's the first Christian. Uh, Every Christian since Peter, at least every Christian who takes sin seriously and who takes godliness seriously and who takes sound doctrine seriously, every Christian struggles with being judgmental at some point. In fact, in my experience, the only people I meet who don't struggle in this area are people who have another problem which is they don't care enough about sin and they don't care enough about godliness and they don't care enough about making sure we believe the truths of the scriptures. Because the reality is, as soon as you start caring, like God does, about our lives and our doctrine, the danger is judgmentalism will come. That that is just a reality. The two go hand in hand. Just because it's common, though, doesn't make it okay. Uh, I mean, Jesus spoke against this so clearly, didn't he? I talked about how he talked about money more than anything else. But he talked a lot about this sin, about comparing yourself to other people and judging uh, other people a lot. The reality is when people who know Jesus are judgmental, uh, when our world sees Christians as judgmental, it dishonours the name of Christ and it dishonours the gospel. So we need to deal with it. That's the reality. But it's interesting though, just how much our world loves this part of Jesus' teaching. Uh, That line we read from Matthew 7, that Craig read for us before, from Matthew 7, don't judge or you will be judged, that line, I think, is one of the most famous things Jesus said. People who have no idea about Jesus, who've never opened a Bible, they love that line. Judge not lest ye be judged. They often quote the King James because that was the last time they went to Sunday school or that, that sort, of, sort of thing. But, but it's just so famous, isn't it? I was listening to an old REM song this week. Ever since my kids put Spotify on my phone, uh, I'm listening to all sorts of music from my youth. I'm sort of catching up on what I used to listen to when I was at school and at uni and that sort of thing. Uh, but in the, there's a song in that, New Test Leper. It's a very obscure REM song. No one will know it. But the singer, Michael Stipe, he, he says... 
in fact, I was going to play it. I was going to play it. But the last time I played a song during church was when I played Kanye West closed on Sunday for my talk on the commandment about the Sabbath. And the following week, the government closed us because of COVID. And Sophie said to me, you can't play a song in church. I, now, we're not superstitious, but I didn't want us to be closed next Sunday. So anyway, in the song, the singer, he says this. He says, I can't say that I love Jesus. So he's saying, I'm not a Christian. But then he says this. It'll come up on the screen. He says, but he, Jesus, did make some observations, and I'm quoting them today. Judge not, lest ye be judged. What a beautiful refrain. It's, it's, it is. It's a beautiful refrain, isn't it? Judge not. We all say that is, that is a beautiful teaching. And even Christ, non-Christians say, I love that about Jesus. I love that idea. There's something wonderful uh, about this call of Jesus to not judge one another. There's something that's just so attractive. It is a beautiful refrain. Now, I think it is so attractive because every Christian hates to be judged. So every person hates to be judged. Every person hates to be judged, but at the same time, every human being is quick to judge. It's like a universal reality where we're all hypocrites on this. Every human being I meet hates to be judged. Everyone says, judgment, oh, it's horrible. And yet we're also good at doing it. We love to compare ourselves to other people. We, we, we love to stand in judgment. We're so much quicker, to use Jesus' words, to see the speck in other people's eyes than we are to ever see the log in our own eyes. The reason I chose that Old Testament reading before is because that story of King David, I think, just captures the reality of this sin and the reality of the human heart so well. I think that that story is one of the saddest but most real moments in the whole Bible. Uh, so King, just to give you the context again, King David has sent his armies off to war. There's his first issue while he sits back in the palace. So he's there in the palace while his armies are off fighting his battles for him. He sees a beautiful woman bathing on the roof, Bathsheba, and just because he can, he takes her for himself. Even though he knows she's married, and worse than that, she's married to one of his most loyal soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. So here we have great King David, an adulterer, but it gets worse. She is pregnant. He's besotted with her. So he arranges to have her husband put in the front line of the battle so that he might be killed. Now, in his heart, like all Pharisees, David's thinking, well, I'm not a murderer. He was going to die in the battle anyway. I just helped it happen. But no, no, he was a murderer, not just an adulterer. Now he's engineered his loyal subject's death. And so the prophet Nathan, one of the bravest people in history, I think, in the breeding we had before, he comes to King David, he tells him a story. He says, there's a poor farmer and he's got one little lamb one little lamb, that's all he has. Here is this rich farmer who has the biggest flocks in the country, thousands of sheep. When a visitor pops in to see the rich man, instead of killing one of his thousand lambs, what does he do? Goes and takes that man's one lamb and cooks it instead. And it's beautiful. Nathan doesn't even finish the story. Did you notice as we read it before, David just cries out, he burns with anger, it says, and he yells, you know, surely as the Lord lives, that man must die for what he's done. And in just one of the great moments of the Bible, Nathan says to David, that man is you. That man is you. And as I, say, I think that's one of those powerful moments in the Bible. Somehow David is unable to see the forest of wood in his own eye, even while he is so quick to judge a fictional man in a story. 
You know, and I think the reason it's so powerful is because if we're honest, we all see ourselves in David. You see, we might not be guilty of adultery or murder, although we should remember what Jesus says about hating in our hearts and lusting in our hearts in the Sermon on the Mount. But we, don't all, we might not be guilty of those things, but we all see something of ourselves in David's attitude. Uh, how we're incredibly good at seeing what everyone else does wrong. We're incredibly good at condemning people for it, but then amazingly blind to our own failings. And so Jesus says in our New Testament reading, which I'm going to focus on today, so have that open, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. He says it so clearly, so simply, don't judge. So there's our sermon. Let's pray. No, that was a joke. We're going to keep talking because, of course, anyone who knows their Bible knows it's not as simple as that. You see, it's not as simple as just not judging because elsewhere the Bible says we are to judge in some ways. See, the rest of the New Testament is really clear that there is a time for Christians to judge. There is a time for us to make judgments. So understand this warning that Jesus is giving. I think it's really important to actually ask a question before that, which is, when is it right to judge? So I've called it here. The Christian is called to judge. Go back one slide. Thanks, Gar. See, part of the difficulty is sin and godliness and what you believe really matters. And if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, sin in their life really matters. And godliness in their life really matters. And what they believe really matters. So Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, it'll come up. He's talking to Timothy, the young pastor. He says, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he's saying, Timothy, these things really matter. It's not a matter of indifference how you live your life. It's not a matter of indifference what you believe. Watch them closely and even watch the impact you have on other people. Because if you let your life go, if you act in an ungodly way, you might lead other people away from salvation. If you don't watch your doctrine, it's not just your salvation, it's other people's salvation. He's saying these things matter. They impact your salvation and other people's. So you need to judge yourself. It's a clear teaching of Scripture. You need to not be satisfied with false doctrine or, or ungodliness in your life. But then what the Bible stresses is, is that in love, sometimes we need to be concerned about those things in other people. So even in our Matthew 7 passage, do you notice Jesus does actually say to help people remove the specks? It's remove the log so you can see clearly. In verse 6, I'm not going to go into that, but Jesus talks about treating some people as pigs and dogs. If that's not a negative judgment, I don't know what is. You know, Jesus is clearly not having a world where everyone, no, it doesn't matter what you do, we just let it happen. So all through the Bible, there's just this assumption that if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll sometimes have to show that by challenging them and even sometimes rebuking them about sin in their lives. So in Matthew chapter 18, look at it on the screen, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. You see, Jesus is saying it matters when there's sin in a brother's life. You love them, you'll go and try and seek them out and, and deal with it. But then he actually sets out a whole process of how to respond if they don't repent. And the process ultimately ends up with treating them like an unbeliever which is making a judgment. It's what we call church discipline. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul sort of shows how Matthew 18 works out in practice. And he actually gets to the point of kicking people out of the church because they will not repent of their sin. In this case, it was sexual immorality. But it's like, as, even as he's saying it, if you read 1 Corinthians 5 later on, you'll see this. It, it, it's like he knows that Christians will struggle with it. He knows that we're thinking, but didn't Jesus say don't judge? This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12. He says, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? He means non-Christians. But don't you judge those who are inside? The point is, of course we don't judge people outside the church. There is no use helping non-Christians improve their morality. It doesn't actually change their ultimate place and standing before God. What use is it telling a person who doesn't know Jesus to stop swearing? What use is it telling a person who doesn't know Jesus to stop getting drunk? What use is it telling them to stop sleeping around? It's like trying to cure cancer by putting a band-aid on the symptom rather than deal with the real problem, which is they need God's forgiveness and they need a new heart. And if they receive that, then their life will change and they'll seek to live for him. They need salvation. They need to hear the gospel. But for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for people who claim to know Jesus, godliness matters. And so there is a place for judgment within the church, Paul is saying. But wow, that judgment can go wrong. And wow, that judgment can hide the sins in the person doing the judging. And so there's one final passage that really helps us understand this. It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. So he's saying, yeah, there's a place to judge. Sometimes we need to love people enough to rebuke them and challenge them. But do you see what the goal is? The goal is not to condemn. The goal is not to say, look at me, I'm better than you. The goal is always to restore them. The goal is always to help them not to condemn them. The goal is to, to bring them back so that they find forgiveness and then reconciliation. It's driven by what is best for the person. And if you notice the manner, the manner is not to be harsh and condemning. It's with a spirit of gentleness. It's with a spirit of grace. It's even as you do it saying, there but for the grace of God go I, rather than, oh, well, that's not my show. I can't believe you've done that. Do you see there at the end, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. It's recognising I could just as easily fall into this sin as that person. See, I can't help but compare Galatians chapter 6 to our current secular world with its, with its so-called cancel culture, uh, where our world prides itself on the one hand on calling sinful things good and, and goodful things sin, sinful, and it prides itself on tolerating anything. But wow, if you cross one of the sins of the modern world, there is no grace, there is no forgiveness, there is no hope of restoration, there is just condemnation. There's just cancellation, there's just online shaming. Our world claims no judgment, but gee, it's a judgmental place, isn't it? Well, that is not how it should be in the people of God. Yes, we should care enough about one another that our sin grieves us, but our goal is not to condemn and our goal is not to cancel and our goal is not to stand in judgment. Our goal is to help and to restore and to bring people to forgiveness and to reconciliation. That is how we are to judge one another. But now I want to think about that line. 
Come back to Matthew chapter 7. That line, don't judge or you too will be judged. See, given what we've just seen, what is Jesus driving at in that verse? He's clearly not forbidding all making, all wise discernment. He's not, committing, he's, not, uh, he's not forbidding us ever making a judgment. What he is forbidding, I think, is that critical spirit, that, that judgmental attitude, that, that quickness to condemn and write off without even knowing all the facts, that quickness to look for the wrong in the other person rather than show grace. And I want to say... We all know that temptation to be judgmental, don't we? It manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. There's the supercritical spirit where, where no one is up to my standards and where everything I see is to be criticised and, and, and nothing is, is good enough. It was it's interesting, Ben at our 9am service got up after I spoke and he said he, he heard of a man going up to his minister once and saying, oh, you should be thankful to have me in the congregation because God has given me the gift of criticism because I can, spot any, I can spot the problems in anything. What a horrible thing to be proud of, you know. I'm the only one who's right and unless you meet my high standards, you're hopeless, you know. It shows itself in the way we make assumptions and we write people off without seeking to understand why they're doing what they're doing and why they're, they're thinking how they're thinking, without even trying to understand their circumstances, without allowing for the fact we might know everything. It shows itself really just like King David, where our sin is really obvious to everyone else, but for some reason it's not obvious to us, but other people's is. You see, even the godliest Christian knows this temptation. Because the more you work at being godly, the more you fall into the... You, you struggle, at least, with this. You know, I work hard at taming my tongue. I, I work hard. I give up hours of my week in, in Christian service. I've made godly decisions in, in my life. I've sacrificed things to take the godly path. I'm, I work at being generous with my money. You know, list out all the different areas where you've worked on. Doesn't that give me the right to just look down my nose a little bit at, at the people who haven't? Don't I have the right to just feel a little bit self-satisfied in, in comparison to the people who haven't? I deserve that at least for my efforts. Is there anyone who doesn't know this temptation? So Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. This is so hard for us to get right, I think, being discerning without being judgmental. Walking, holding that tension, being discerning without being judgmental. I'll, I'll give you an insight into my struggles. I see it in myself when I listen to Bible talks. Never at St. George North, but when I go to other places, when I, uh, when I go on a conference or that sort of thing, this is a problem for the preacher. I can listen to a talk to critique rather than to take what I can from the faithful teaching of the Word. See, isn't that incredible? I can actually hear the Word of God preached as a critic rather than a humble, penitent follower of Jesus. See, it's right to listen. It's right to test the message against the Scriptures. That's a wonderful thing to do. But how quickly my godly critique crosses the line to judgmental criticism. And sometimes it doesn't cross that line. But just, why do I have that spirit in the first place? So what is the key? Well, it's about having the right attitude. We should ask ourselves, why am I so quick to see the negative in the other person? What's driving that? Why? Why do I want to point out the fault in other people? What, what's driving that? What's my motive? And, and if I have to do it, 
Do I do it gently and privately out of love for them to help them grow? Or is actually my real desire to tear them down, to build myself up? If it's the latter, we're much better off leaving it to someone else to point out any fault. Even more important, we should ask ourselves, what attitude do we want God to have towards us? Because that's the attitude we should have to other people. And that's the point Jesus is making in verses 1 and 2. So look with me in Matthew 7. When he says, do not judge so that you won't be judged, he then says, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So we have to ask, what measure, when I stand before the judgment seat of God, what measure do I want God to use on me? Do I want God to judge me fairly but with mercy and forgiveness? Or do I want God to judge me with a condemning and judgmental spirit, which he is perfectly entitled to do? I, for one, pray for God's mercy. See, if we know the God who judges and condemns Jesus in our place and so refuses to condemn us, even though we deserve it, but instead offers us forgiveness and mercy and grace, if you know that God... Jesus is saying, how on earth can you think you have the right to stand in judgment and condemn other people? If you know the mercy, if you know the reality of your own sin, and you know the grace and forgiveness God has shown you in Christ, how on earth can we be quick to judge and quick to condemn others? So Jesus gives us his famous example. Look at verse 3. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus' point is really, really simple. A judging spirit tends to go hand in hand with hypocrisy. Those of us that are the quickest to judge the sins in others nearly always are the slowest to see the sins in ourselves. Jesus is saying, worry more about your own godliness. Worry more about your godliness before you worry about other people. Show other people more grace than you show yourself. Don't be one of those people who's worried about everyone else except yourself. This brings me to my next point, which I've called it judging the judgmental. There is an incredible irony I have found in this passage. It is amazing how often people, and I include myself here, it is amazing how often we are quick to apply this passage to other people. I've done it this week while preparing this sermon. I've thought of friends of mine and I've, I've thought, gee, I wish they went to our church because gosh, they've got to hear this sermon because they're so judgmental. Do you see the irony in that? You see, it's amazing how often we are quick to apply this to other people. We read this and we say, isn't that true? Oh, yeah, that, that church was so judgmental of me. That guy was so judgmental to me when he pointed out my whatever it was. That minister needed to look at this passage closer, the way he dared to, to challenge me. Do you see the irony? We judge other people for being judgmental. We're funny things, we sinful human beings, aren't we? More than that, I think that's an abuse of Jesus' words. Uh, we must never use the plank in the eye of the other person as a justification for us not to deal with the sin in our own lives. You see, Jesus says to them, don't be a hypocrite. But he says to you, don't continue in sin. 
Remember the most famous story Jesus told on this whole topic was, was well, not a story, it was a, it was a moment where they were rushing to stone the adulterous woman. Do you remember the story? They were all rushing and Jesus stands in front of them and famously said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And everyone stops the story there. Everyone acts like that was the end of the story. There's a final verse. After they have shamefully dropped their stones and admitted, no, we don't have the right to judge and walked away, Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no longer. You see, Jesus says, they were hypocrites, but you still need to deal with your sin. We must be one of those self-righteous fools who uses this passage as an excuse to just continue to wallow in our sin and just say, oh, don't you dare judge me. This is about your heart towards other people. Well, as I finish... Ultimately, what is the underlying problem behind judgmentalism? The real problem is what I call a critical spirit. A spirit that is looking to compare ourselves to other people. A spirit that is looking for the bad in other people. A spirit that assumes you know better. And many of us struggle with this sin even though we never ever say anything to anyone about the speck in their eye. You see, our judging is done on the car ride home. Our judging is done in quiet gossip with a close friend. Our judging perhaps never even comes out of our mouth. It's just in here and in here. You see, the judgmental word is just the symptom of the critical spirit. Instead, we want to be cultivating what I call a gracious spirit. The spirit that Ephesians 4 is talking about. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 32. It says, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. In the same way, we want to be cultivating the wisdom that James 3 talks about. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. See, how do we challenge our critical spirit? How do we cultivate that sort of a gracious spirit? There are practical things we can do. We can hear the call of James chapter 1, verse 19. It'll come up. It says, My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, you see, that, that verse goes with uh, last week's sermon on sins of the tongue. And yes, it's about how we speak. But I think that verse goes so much more than that. It's talking about having a spirit that doesn't rush to judgment. It's talking about a spirit that, that rather than saying your words quickly, wants to ask the other person, wants to listen to them and wants to hear from them before you rush to speak in judgment. So you see, we can do, do practical things. We can work at not being jumpers to conclusions. We can work at trying to understand people before we judge. We can work at being quick to listen and slow to speak. There's all sorts of practical things we can do. But at its heart, and the point we saw earlier, at its heart, what we need to do is just think, how do I want God to judge me? That's the key point. What attitude do I want God to have towards me? There's a sobering line in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, it'll come up on the screen, where Paul is talking about how they had divisions in their church where people were criticising one another. And he says, but you, why do you criticise your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. His point is, when you stand before God, do you really want him to judge you with the critical spirit you're showing your brothers and sisters? What measure do you want God to use when he judges you?
I go back to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, as Christians, we know that we are awful sinners. But rather than condemning us, God sent his son to die for us. Rather than judging me as I deserve, God showed me grace and mercy. If we know that, as I pray we all do, how can we then dare to stand in judgment over other people? So let's work at putting off judgmentalism. Let's work at repenting of that critical spirit and let's work at putting on a spirit of grace and mercy. The same sort of grace and mercy we've received from Christ. I'll pray for us in that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that all too often we are quick to judge. All too often we have a spirit of criticism rather than a spirit of grace and mercy. And so, Father, we repent of that. And we pray that we would so understand the mercy and grace that you have shown us that it then totally shapes the attitude we have to other people. That we will be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to judge. And if there is a need to speak to a brother or sister in Christ, we pray that we will hear that word from Galatians 6, that we'll do it with gentleness, always with the aim of the good of the other person, seeking to bring them to forgiveness and reconciliation. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.